coming to you from the Philadelphia area. This is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. Mark 15:33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthini, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ten years ago, I stood outside the Book Depository building in Dallas, Texas. I overlooked Grassy Knoll. And as cars zoomed by, I stood frozen on the street corner for what seemed, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. Or I was almost in a trance. Just realizing that almost 50 years earlier at that point, the presidential motorcade turned that exact corner that I was looking at. I could almost see John F. Kennedy waving to all of the people. I could almost hear the gunshots ringing out. And then the image that is burned in all of our minds, I'm sure, of Jackie Kennedy panicking completely, I'm disoriented and falling backward onto the motorcade, processing that it all happened right here. In the winter of 2006, I stood outside of um, a Dakota building overlooking Central Park. And I stood in the exact spot where John Lennon signed an autograph for Mark David Chapman. Then I looked just ahead where John Lennon had been shot to death. And from the moment that I stood in front of that apartment building, I'll never forget how it was instantly um, a different environment than it was even across of the streets. Like the grassy knoll, this was also a place where everybody lowered their speaking voice. There was just this somber melancholy emanating that could be felt. I remember a couple of John Lennon fans, I'm sure, who were embracing as they cried. And the only words and conversation that I could hear in that place as I stood there was only the most occasional whispers overhearing other people saying that it was there. That's where he fell, just beyond the gates. I mean, these were some of the most shocking and devastating tragedies of the 20th century. And yet when Jesus died, though, Jesus died as one far greater than John the Baptist, let alone John Lennon or John F. Kennedy. As believers in the risen Jesus, We rightfully shout his gospel from the rooftops. And yet the longer that we stand at the foot of the cross, and the deeper that we delve into each final sentence that he utters from up above there, what Jesus says on the cross, well, it is um, so devastatingly holy that it almost demands to whisper it even as Jesus screams it from the cross. 
And yet, as we notice in our text, Mark reveals Jesus had been crucified from roughly 9 a.m. until roughly 3 p.m. 9 a.m. is what we heard last week as Jesus says the very first words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And yet then we learn, though, that between noon and 3 o'clock, there's this absolute darkness that falls upon the entire Judean landscape. And so what we need to have burned in our minds is the reality that as Jesus is, is hanging on a cross, it is midnight at noon. And once again, as we saw last week at the cross, the um, creation has yet again come full circle. I mean, there was absolute darkness before there was even a world. Where the very first words that we have in Scripture, it describes an earth that was without form. And it gives us the image of a God sitting alone in the darkness. Just nothing but absolute darkness for as far as one hour to a hundred million years. We don't know how long it was, but, but forever how long of a duration it was, God sits alone in the darkness. And God takes our names to his heart before there was even a world or a galaxy. For three days, there was absolute darkness in Egypt. Where even after the Nile had become blood and all of the plagues of the boils and the hail and the frogs and the flies had come and gone, Pharaoh's heart is still hard and it is still set upon another gener you know, 20 generations of Hebrew slavery. And so a darkness falls upon the entire Egyptian landscape. And as Moses reveals to us in the book of Exodus, it was a darkness that was so utterly dark, that it was a darkness that could be felt. It was a darkness that had a taste to it, where for three days, Egyptians could not see anything or anyone. And all that they could do for those three days was to agonize alone in the darkness. And now as Jesus is nailed to a cross in absolute um, pitch-black darkness, this was especially a darkness that could be felt. For even the sun has hidden its face from what is occurring down below, refusing to shine, its rays snuffed out like a candle. I find it interesting how the Roman astrologers of the time writing about this exact event say that it was so dark that the stars were, were completely visible at noon. The prophet Amos thought that he was speaking about something else. And yet this is truly the bitter morning that he spoke of hundreds of years earlier. Where God through the prophet Amos writes in Amos chapter 8 and verse 9, that upon that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning, and I will turn all of your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth upon every waist and baldness upon every head. And then he says that I will make it like the morning for an only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. And so now it is midnight at noon. And yet for Jesus, you know, it's been dark for much longer than that. 
where the evening before we remember that in the upper room as Judas Iscariot stands up and he leaves to go betray Jesus. John says rather poetically that it was night. And soon thereafter, as Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, what he says to the chief priest is that, hey, this is your hour. And this is the power of darkness. And now as Jesus hangs on the cross in absolute darkness, it is the darkness of the virgin earth. It's the darkness of Egypt that could be felt. It's the darkness of a religious world, the blind hypocrites who, who hate and despise their own brother and neighbor, and they can't see where they're going because of it. It's the darkness of all of the sin and all of the corruption of all of humanity cast upon this scapegoat Jesus wrapped together in, in one. This is the moment when Jesus once again speaks from the cross. And in the original language, what it implies is not just a cry, but an unusually loud cry. As we read Jesus saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthini, we need to understand that this was a disturbing, animalistic, blood-curdling shriek that he makes from the cross. And as we look at the words, and as they just stare at us from the pages of our Bibles. I mean, this is such a human cry, isn't it? The cry of why. I mean, every single one of us knows how it feels when it is midnight at noon in our lives. When absolute darkness falls upon the landscape of our lives and, uh, and it covers the landscape of our souls. It's the moment and the seasons of our life when our vocabulary and our prayers are reduced to just one and only one word, and that is the cry of why. It's the faithful man who loves God with all of his heart, soul, and strength. And he loves his wife as Christ loves the church. He loves his children with all of his heart. And yet then he discovers that for the past two and a half years, his wife has been having affairs behind his back. She divorces him one day. And soon, many people at church begin whispering, not about her, but about him. They begin hypothesizing that maybe he isn't such a faithful man of God after all. And they begin saying things that maybe he is not even a Christian at this point anymore. A couple years later, his children move out of his house, and now he finds himself sitting all alone by himself in the darkness. And I mean, all that he can do is to agonize at the crucifixion of his marriage, at the Golgotha of his family, at the skull of his reputation. And he cries, my God, my God, why? It's a young couple who aren't exactly so young anymore because they have suffered many miscarriages. And yet at last there is a child that they conceive and, and they have a baby shower and they, they are just walking on air after all of these years waiting and, and agonizing, God, please give us a child. She is finally conceived. 
Nine months later, she gives birth to a baby girl who then catches a freak virus 12 hours later and she dies in the hospital. And all that they or anyone else who they know can do is to cry, God, why? It's what gnaws at the world whenever it watches the news at night. Where the world cries, God, why are there earthquakes? Why does cancer even exist in this world? Why do atrocity after atrocity and war crime after war crime continuously happen in Ukraine? God, why is something this barbaric still happening in the 21st century world? God, why is this happening? God, why won't you intervene? My God, my God, why, after all of these years that I've been faithful to you, why is this happening or why is that happening? And as agonizing as, as the three hours of the darkness is for Jesus on the cross, I mean, it gets even worse for Jesus. And what was worse than the three hours of absolute darkness were the three hours of silence from the heavens. Where Jesus is in the dark, what he processes is, is that angels are not going to be bailing me out of this. I'm not going to be able to just merely slip through everybody's midst and to escape as I did all those other times. Jesus mentally understands that I'm going to die. And I'm going to die in this absolute pitch black darkness. And so as Jesus screams his voice box hoarse with why, well, this was heaven's response. Just as heaven was silent, as every precious soul in Bucha at Auschwitz, the Christians in the Roman Colosseums fed to lions, our loved ones who succumbed to cancer, died in a silent and in a devastating, excruciating darkness that could be felt, and in a darkness that even had a taste to it. You know, what I find so interesting is that we have a Bible full of God asking us people questions. And yet here, rarely, we have the example of God asking God a question. And that question is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so, I mean, has God the Father abandoned God the Son? It would appear that way, but we need to remember that Jesus is praying borrowed words from King David in Psalm 22. We don't have time to read the, the whole entire psalm, but I, I invite us all to later this afternoon. Where the entire Psalm 22, it is Jesus on the cross. I mean, in Psalm 22, David thought that he was speaking of his own sufferings. And yet he is, he is describing sufferings of one far greater than he himself where he says in verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help me. 
Verses 19 through 21, what he cries out is, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. He says, Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. He's crying out to the God who is able to save him if he wanted to. And yet we know how this cry and how this particular prayer had been answered. Where it's not answered at the end of the psalm, it's answered at the very beginning in verse 1. As King David also cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And whether it was David, or it was Jesus, or it's you, or it's me, these are the times when God is absolutely reigning in the world and he's working in our lives, and yet it doesn't look like it. God is reigning as Lord over our, our lives, but it doesn't exactly feel like it. What it feels like is that he has abandoned us. He's deserted us by his silence in the dark. And he has left us all alone and, and, and he's exposed us to a cruel and a vicious world where we're going to die alone. And yet, you know, as, as Christians though, you know that I never leave us with the bad news, do I? I always punctuated with the good news and this is what the good news is for us whenever we find ourselves in this place. And the good news is simply that we are never, ever, ever deserted by God. Soon the sun is going to shine once again and it's going to set the night on fire. And that's because even in a world of Psalm 22.1, there is an aftermath of Psalm 22.24. And I mean, if you are in a, in a place in your life right now this morning where it feels like it is midnight at noon in your heart, in your life, listen to these words. Psalm 22.24, David says, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cries or when she cries out to him. When it is midnight at noon and we cry, why? Remember Psalm 23. Or even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Because you have not abandoned me or forsaken me or deserted me. You are with me through the valley of the shadow of death. When it's midnight at noon and we cry, why? Don't forget Psalm 30 and verse 5. Where the psalmist says there that weeping may endure for the night. And yet a shout of joy comes in the morning. And for Jesus, it's not literally going to be just one morning. It's going to be three mornings. But three mornings later, what is there? There is a shout of joy. And the angel and, and God himself saying, roll that stone away. I mean, in each and every instance of absolute darkness falling upon the landscape of the earth, God illuminated it. God did not leave us or abandon humanity in the dark, ever. 
At the creation, as the earth had been completely dark and without void and without form, God said, let there be light, and it was so. He said, let there be a sun, and there was a sun. God guided the Israelites as they navigated through the wilderness terrains, a fire by night and a cloud by day. And now as the light of the world, Jesus dies in the darkness of the earth. Nevertheless, Jesus, the light of the world, is shining in the midst of the darkness. And that darkness could not and would not overcome it. And isn't it amazing that even when it appears as if God the Father has abandoned God the Son, He had not. But rather what we're witnessing in the scriptures is the man of sorrows is joyously accepting his new status as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What we're seeing is God in all of his fullness showing us how far and how wide and how deep his grace will reach for us. And yet when it feels as if God has abandoned us, I mean, we don't even have to come up with the words to pray to him. No, Jesus has already prayed them from the cross. Jesus praying borrowed words from King David, just as we borrow words in prayer of Jesus through King David. And so a month and a half later, after the cross, we hear the risen Jesus proclaim on the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, notice this, you know, yet another connection between King David and King Jesus. Where in Acts chapter 2 and verse 25, what Simon Peter says on that day is, as King David said concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And so therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. And then especially let us hear these words this morning. Where then Peter says through King David, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. And you will not let your Holy One see corruption. But rather you have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. And so my brothers and sisters, when the darkness of midnight falls all over your land at noon, and you feel alone, and you feel forsaken, and you feel abandoned and deserted, like David wade into that raging torrent, Enter into the deafening silence of the heavens. Yes, it is excruciating. It is soul-crushing. It's, you know, it's hell. And yet it is also momentary. And it culminates with heaven in us. And heaven one day for us. I close this morning with the Apostle Paul. As we know, the Apostle Paul also agonized in, in this silent darkness, didn't he? There were people trying to kill him. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. But we also remember how Paul, 
on at least three occasions cries out to God, My God, my God, why will you not remove this thorn from my side? And yet in the slow and in the agonizingly hellish process of hoping in God as heaven is silent, he found that he was not alone. And that it wasn't quite as dark as he once thought that it was. And that's because there was a light that was shining. And that light was the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ shining in his soul. Illuminating his soul. And so he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 10, But we have this treasure of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in jars of clay, or in other words, in our human vessels, in order to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. For we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are not abandoned or deserted or, or left to die alone in the excruciating darkness. We are struck down by the world, but we are not destroyed by the world. So my loved ones, we are not forsaken by God. So I encourage you and I encourage me that the night is almost gone. The day is drawing near. If you are in a place in your life right now where it is midnight at noon, just know and remember. Do not lose sight of the fact that, that resurrection and praise awaits us in the morning. Just as it awaited Jesus three mornings later. Our story has a powerful and a beautiful and a triumphant ending.